It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Week one of COP26 is drawing to a close, and we're going deep into the heart of the world's greatest rainforest. It's a long journey to get there. I had to get three flights and then by car for, well, eight hours, although it felt longer, on the Trans-Amazonic Highway, which is not a highway for a lot of it. A lot of it, there's no road at all and trucks are sort of have come off the road and blocked things. And so people are trying to find their way round and it's basically like red mud very, very bumpy. Sunday Times Chief Foreign Correspondent Christina Lamb is our guide, taking us to a remote village in the northern Brazilian state of Para to meet an indigenous tribe fighting to save their homes and their habitat. Eventually came to a town called Itaituba, which is like a sort of wild west frontier town, really, on the river. It's uh, where lots of gold miners trade. From there, I then took another car the next day for two hours, I think, and then a canoe for a couple of hours along the river and then walked up a hill and found myself in a village called Soremobu, which is one of the most sacred villages of the Munduruku people. You're listening to Stories of Our Times, The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, COP26, the battle for the Amazon. In Glasgow this week, world leaders pledged to halt and reverse deforestation around the world by 2030. That's nine years from now. Climate change and biodiversity are two sides of the same coin. We, we have to stop the devastating loss of our forests that are the lungs of our planet. More leaders than ever before have now signed up to protect our forests. It is this simple. Let's get to work. But for the Munduraku, that work has never stopped. Their fight is now, and the threat to their existence is constant. I mean, first of all, the river, the Tapajos, to get to them, the last part, is beautiful. I've been on the river before, and there's sort of white beaches. You've got hills either side, very densely forested by Amazon jungle. And the sound that you hear of all the birds and crickets and um, insects. Because it's incredibly humid and so you're quickly very sweaty. 
my boots as I got off the boat decided both of them to crack open, which wasn't very convenient. And when I got to the village, the people all came out, lots of children, lots of people with painted designs on their faces and arms and legs, lots of dogs actually, but also other animals like one child, one little girl had a, a marmoset on her head, like a little grey monkey, and a boy carrying something called a kuti, an animal with a long tail, and then there was a giant scarlet macaw on the ground, sort of hopping around, and monkeys, and yeah, it's very beautiful. The picture you paint there is rather pleasant, actually, and bucolic. And yet there was something going on in the background, wasn't there? When I picture my time at the village, mostly, well, apart from the f- remembering not being able to sleep because I found it really difficult sleeping in a hammock and I bought a hammock which wasn't wide enough, so I kept almost falling out of it. But other main picture in my mind is this brook or what they call an igarape where everybody used to go to to wash and swim and cool down the children all jumping off the trees into the brook and playing and it was very beautiful scene and idyllic but all the time you hear this noise going on from first thing in the morning from dawn till night this sort of thrumming sound and it is a motor and I understood when the next day they took me out in a canoe and right in front of the village actually there's all these like sand dunes in the river which have been created because if you get a bit further beyond so it's only about 100 meters in front of the village there is this most strange looking thing which is a dredge and I describe it as looking like something that Heath Robinson would have created. It's just a sort of mishmash of different junk parts put together, even including a landing gear of a jumbo jet. And what it is, is a device for dredging up the the soil under the river and bringing it up to look for gold. So there's the generator going the whole time and it is really loud. If you go on the dredge, which I did, you can't hear yourself speak. It's so loud. And so this Heath Robinson machine is essentially scooping up the riverbed and sifting it for gold. Absolutely. It reminded me a bit like if you've seen Matrix, the, one of the machines, it's sort of evil-like thing. So all the water is coming up and then comes down these ramps and goes through a sort of sieving area. And then first they're looking for nuggets, because if you get a gold nugget, that's really worth something. Otherwise, just the, the specks of gold. We'll get to the other very unglittering effects of that dredging in just a moment. But first, our hosts. Just who are the Munduraku? Actually, it's a name that was given to them. It means fire ants or red ants because they were known for being very martial people. They had lots of wars and fights and they were given this name because people said that they came and they like swarmed over their enemies and then they would bring their heads back on sticks. There's about... 14,000 of them in total, and they're scattered along the river in different villages. And there's also some quite near the town of Itaituba. 
And the ones that are further away, like the ones I went to, their life hasn't changed very much. I mean, they still go off hunting, the men come back, they share everything. So there's no sort of idea of individual possession or ownership. So they bring things back which are shared between them all, whether it's monkey or wild pig. They grow yams, there's mango trees and things like that. They do have coffee, but there's very little use of money. The ones that have been in town told me they find it really difficult going to a town because that you have to pay for everything and they don't like all the noise and all the people and they just find it extremely alien to them. Do people tend to stay with the community or have they lost a lot of people to, for want of a better phrase, the modern world? Till now, they've mostly stayed in the community because they haven't really had much contact with the outside world. And it's why I chose to go there, because I was looking for a community which is facing a lot of different challenges. And I mean, the biggest threats in the Amazon, deforestation for people for ranching, for cattle ranching and soya growing. And so these people face all of those threats. So it's, you know, they're sort of fighting on every front, as it were. So that's why I chose to go to them. Let's talk about the effects of the dredging. You've talked about these these large dredges outside. You've talked about how they pile up the, the sand in the, in the middle of the river. What can we say about the effects of that dredging on the environment other than simply, if you like, the kind of unpleasant sound and the unpleasant picture of the mounds? So you see straight away the river, which was a beautiful pale blue, is all brown and murky around that area. And then the most detrimental thing is that these illegal gold miners are using mercury as a way of refining the gold and separating it. And that goes into the river and pollutes the river and pollutes the fish that they eat. And a big study was done and found that the majority of Munduruku have way over the limit of what is considered safe for mercury in their blood and... In fact, uh, they've had issues with children born with neurological problems and one child who died um, of mercury poisoning. So, you know, it's a a major threat. And they told me that they don't eat fish very much anymore, which used to be the main part of their diet. The threat for mercury is a threat we've known about for decades. I remember when I was a teenager, big stories about mercury poisoning in Japan uh, and so on. So this is all very well known. So I suppose the next question is, is gold mining in land like this and the methods used actually legal? So this is a huge problem of now. I actually lived in Brazil in the early 90s and there was a lot of discussion about this then with regards to a particular tribe called the Yanomami. the cause of saving the rainforest is a cause for the whole of the people of Brazil. Not only that, it's the cause of the people of the whole of the world. People like Sting got involved in talking about what was happening to them and that 
area, lots of illegal gold miners moved in. And it wasn't dredges like these big things. It was, you know, small panning for for gold in the rivers, individuals, but it also using the mercury in the same way. And so there was a big outcry. Because also these people don't just do that. They tend to bring in disease that the Indians have not ever been exposed to. So flu, measles, other things that they, you know, not vaccinated against. And also sometimes prostitution or they try and um, lure the indigenous women into prostitution. And also guns and violence. There's a lot of outcry about it then. All people want to live in a safe environment. Yet every day, cars and factories pollute the air. Sewage and waste is dumped into rivers and oceans. At the United Nations Earth Summit, world leaders will discuss ways to curb pollution without hindering economic progress. I was in Rio when they had this first big World Environment Conference, Eco 92, when world leaders all gathered, discussed what was going to be done. And so at that point, Brazil did take a lot of measures to try and and curb this. They created reserves for some of the indigenous groups. In fact, all under their 1988 constitution, all indigenous people should now have their traditional land demarcated as reserves. In those reserves, it's illegal to mine. So there should be no gold miners. The Yanomami, whose reserve was created at that time, currently have, I understand, about 20,000 illegal gold miners in their land. There's only about 32,000 Yanomami. There's, you know, two-thirds as many gold miners. The Mundurukú area where I went is a little bit more nebulous because it hasn't been officially demarcated as a reserve. It was mapped by the authorities back in 2014, but they have never officially since declared it. But other Mundruku parts have been declared and there are gold miners operating. So that is illegal what they're doing and they're doing it absolutely blatantly. And that also is a difference to the past. In the past, they were a bit, you know, up creeks or a bit hidden away. Now it's out in the open. We'll talk a little bit more about Bolsonaro in a moment. You said at the beginning that you went on the dredger, which means that you actually met the gold miners. Can you talk a little bit about them? The interesting thing is these gold miners themselves, you think of them as the sort of baddies in this, but actually most of them are not the people making the money from this. These are poor people because a dredger like that costs a lot of money. And the people working on it, there were five men working and, and a woman who was working as a, a cook. They mostly from very poor parts of Brazil in the northeast and where there's really little employment. And so they've gone to the Amazon in search of fortune. And and they have, in most cases, have not found fortune, have found a pretty miserable life. I mean, I think living on that stretcher where... You're living with that noise from early morning to late at night is pretty grim. I mean, some of them hadn't been home for two or three years. And it's a really grim life because also, you know, there's a lot of disease, there's malaria, there's tarantulas, there's scorpions, there's snakes. You know, it's not an easy life. And the people making the money are the... uh, People that don't go there, they're like kind of mafias that control all of these dredges areas, send the people in. 
We've talked a bit about what's happening to this community. Are similar things happening to other Indigenous communities? And if so, what are they? Yes, I mean, deforestation in the Amazon is at its highest level for the last 12 years. A lot of that is Brazil is the world's biggest beef exporter. A lot of us buying meat in this country are buying beef that comes from Brazil. And so there is pressure all the time to cut down more and more forest and use the land for keeping cattle or for soya, which is also, I think, Brazil is the second biggest producer of that. And the deforestation, for obvious reasons, directly affects the indigenous. There's no one better for, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about this. There is no one better for protecting this rainforest than the indigenous people who have lived there for centuries. And it's their territory. They regard the trees, the river, as sacred. They think if you damage them, then something terrible will happen to us, which maybe is something that we're starting to learn. But they've always felt that. And so, you know, keeping them in place is really important, not just for them and future generations of them, but for the rest of the world. So the Amazon is important for us for for two reasons really. Uh, One is the biodiversity about 10% of the world's biodiversity is in the Amazon so literally almost every day new species are being discovered there and you know these could be including things that are cures for diseases and things that might be wiped out before we even know that they exist and you know when you go in there you see the most stunning you know, these butterflies with these iridescent blue wings uh, creatures that you just don't see anywhere else the other thing is we talk a lot about carbon emissions and and the need for a reduction of emissions the forest plays a really important part here because people often describe the Amazon as the lungs of the world and it acts as a kind of sink for carbon emission. At the moment, it absorbs and stores carbon dioxide. But if you cut the forest down, it not only stops fulfilling that function, but it also releases the stored carbon back into the atmosphere. So it then is adding to the emissions rather than helping reduce them. The Mundurukku are up against forces so much larger and powerful than them, not least of which is the Brazilian government. Coming up, the Mundurukku fight back. But first... Hi, I'm Emily Dugan, social affairs correspondent at the Sunday Times. It's you, listeners and subscribers, who enable me to investigate. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with the Times and the Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, as you said, you lived in Brazil in the 1990s and back then visited the Amazon quite a lot. What do you notice in terms of the difference between then and now, as much psychologically in the way in which people talk about it and the atmosphere around which it's discussed as what you can see physically? So one of the things that I think that we don't always realise outside is that a lot of people in Brazil feel resentful towards how people talk about the Amazon in the rest of the world, that they say you've cut down all your forests and things. Why should we be the ones that have to pay? You You have all these emissions. But it's not just that. Many Brazilians, certainly in, in the past, used to feel that the Amazon was a sort of backward place that needed opening up, that has very rich mineral resources and that this should be opened for the rest of Brazil. It shouldn't be some cut-off thing. And that also what people were asking them to do with creating reserves for Indigenous people was almost like keeping them in zoos. So many Brazilians, actually my I had a Brazilian boyfriend at the time in Rio and he felt like that. He didn't understand why I was so interested in, in going to the Amazon and that meeting the people. He thought that they were sort of backward and almost not the image of Brazil that he felt they wanted to give. I think that's changed. There's much more awareness in Brazil now of the importance of the Amazon and the indigenous people. But unfortunately, what has changed is that the government is very different. People will have heard of Jair Bolsonaro, the populist president who styles himself on Donald Trump. He, I mean, it's fair to say, is openly hostile to Indigenous people. He has encouraged deforestation. He has encouraged people to go and mine and things in the rainforest. He's tried to put through legislation legalising it. And so it's a kind of free-for-all um, environment now. No, that's why this dredger was right in front of the Indian village, because they know the government and its authorities are not going to do a thing about it. It was really interesting. You're, you're talking there about how differently this can be seen by a large number of Brazilians. And that presumably partially explains why Bolsonaro won his campaign. And yet the overall bigger facts are about decarbonisation and about biodiversity. How does that argument play out in somewhere like Brazil? I think Brazil is very split at the moment. You know, there are a lot of people that recognise this problem, that think the Indigenous people have a right to their lands. There's a lot of people who think, like Bolsonaro says, they've got too much land. Why should the Indians have all this land? He said when he was campaigning two years ago to be president, I will make sure the Indians don't get a centimetre more land. And he stopped this whole process of demarcating land. He's the first president not to create a single reserve. He's stopped everything. And not only that, he's trying to bring in legislation to take back some of the land that has been granted. So Indigenous people, I talked about, you know, the problems that they're facing 
from the loggers, from the gold miners, from the ranchers and soya growers. But actually, the biggest problem at the moment is their own government. They do not have a government that wants to protect them. They have a government that thinks that their land should be opened up for everybody. E um equívoco, como até os cientistas afirmar que a Amazônia, a nossa floresta, é o pulmão do mundo. You've mentioned that some of his language against indigenous people has been quite violent. And the picture you've painted is one which has quite a capacity for violence in it. Is there a lot of violence? Yes, there is a lot of violence. I mean, he's said things like, you know, that he feels ashamed that the Brazilian cavalry wasn't as efficient as the Americans who exterminated their indigenous people. And so, of course, that encourages people to think they can do what they like. And so there has been a lot more violence. More people have been killed in land conflicts over the last year than for years. The Munduruku, for example, have had people invade their areas. Not this particular village I was at, but another village, Jacarepaguá, recently in April, May, people invaded the village, set fire to the houses of some of the indigenous people who have most spoken up against what's happening. And I think the one of the reasons that I was particularly interested in this group, and maybe we could talk about, was that many of those people are women. I think this is a very good point at which to talk about exactly that. You've spoken to people who essentially are involved in the business of campaigning and fighting back against what's happening. Can you tell me who they are and what they're doing? So what I thought is fascinating was that you have, so traditionally the women have stayed quiet and the men have kind of gone off, been the warriors, gone to fight other tribes and the women, you know, stay home and do the cooking. Um, and some of these women thought, actually, you know, this is our future that is at stake here. Our children are going to suffer and we need to do something. So some of the women have started taking action and now they have female warriors and they use different means. So there's one woman who I particularly spoke to called Alessandra Kodap, who is at COP right now, having made the long journey all the way from her village to, to Glasgow. Numa comitiva para defender a Amazônia. Nós somos a Amazônia e estamos sempre na Amazônia, a nossa casa. Então é defender, nós trazendo alegria, a floresta para COP 2020. She actually thought we're going to lose everything because of what's happening with these gold miners and, and she's got two sons and she was really concerned about their future. So she started speaking out. People said to her, you can't speak out, you're a woman. And she said, why shouldn't I? And now she has such presence in importance in the village and in the community that people don't really make decisions until there's like, well, let's see what Alessandra thinks. She managed to get a scholarship to go and study law outside of the village in a town. She's found it very hard, not least because she's trying to also bring up a family. And she also now is spending a lot of time campaigning. She now speaks good Portuguese. She has gone and spoken in the Brazilian Senate. She risks her life to do this. She's had death threats. She's had people invade her house. She has to move to different places all the time. She's a really impressive woman. 
who is probably barely five foot tall. And and she also now has a team of, there's several women, not just her. There's another woman called Maria Lusa, whose house was burnt down in May. There's a young woman called Becca Munduruku, who you can look up on Instagram. She uses social media to, uh, she's only 17, 18, to post pictures of what's happening And so they've created this sort of team of, they call it their audio-visual team. They're all female and they've got a drone and they use use the drone to map um, any invasions in their territory and they are really trying to fight back. It's very impressive, but they're up against massive forces ranged against them. You obviously admire them, but do you think they stand any realistic chance? I think they need our help. I mean, these people are are up against very strong forces and, you know, people with guns and people with power. A lot of this depends on whether the government changes. And these women also, you know, they acknowledge, they take these photos of drone pictures of destruction and send them to the Brazilian authorities. Nobody does anything about it, but they're like, at least we're actually registering something because the other thing Bolsonaro did was kind of defund the the authorities that are meant to protect indigenous people and safeguard and monitor their lands and so even if those organizations were motivated to try and protect all the people they wouldn't be able to. What do you think that the leaders meeting at COP right now could possibly do to help I mean, Alessandro, as I said, is there as other indigenous people, not just from Brazil, but other countries. It's, you know, a huge effort for them to go there, to raise the money, to to take a journey. Like, that's very difficult for them. So they should be listened to. They're the people on the ground. They know what needs to be done in their area. So that's the message, I think, that, that, that needs to come. But... This whole situation of this now of where people just think that they can go in and mine in all these places really needs to be brought in control. Otherwise, we will get to a situation where the Amazon has gone beyond the point of saving and a lot of these people will be lost. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Chief Foreign Correspondent for The Sunday Times, Christina Lamb. You can read more of Christina's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Asia Fuchs, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Vulcan Kiseltuk. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon.